tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny and All That Air, the Philip Larkin Society podcast. My name is Lynn Lockwood and I'm the Deputy Chair of the Philip Larkin Society. Today's podcast explores the life and work of English novelist Barbara Pym. She was a contemporary and friend of Philip Larkin. My guests are Deb Fisher, who is the Chair of the Barbara Pym Society, and writer and actor Triona Adams. Triona has dramatised the letters between Philip and Barbara. Deborah Fisher and I'm currently chair of the Barbara Pym Society based at St Hilda's College, Oxford. Um, I was an undergraduate at St Hilda's in the 1970s when Barbara Pym was still alive and still writing and I had never heard of her because it was during that fallow period of her life when she couldn't get books published because they were considered to be rather out of date, not up with the times. I am Welsh, as you can probably tell from my accent, which already makes me unusual for a Barbara Pym fan, because she is really considered to be a, a perhaps a quintessentially English writer, but I see her as her appeal as being much more universal than that. And, you know, I've been able to confirm that from the number of overseas members we have in the PIM Society. I started reading her in the 1980s when I just went into the library one day, the public library, and randomly picked up a book off the shelves because I couldn't decide what I wanted to read. And that book was Quartet in Autumn, uh, which, of course, was one of the books that she published towards the end of her life. So I went on from there. I quite enjoyed Quartet in Autumn, but I found it a little bit strange. It was different from what I normally read. So um, I went on to read Excellent Women, which I really loved. And from there, I went on and read almost all her other books. And then um, in the mid-1990s, I heard that they were starting up this Barbara Pym Society at St Hilda's. What had happened was they had held a uh, special day of events about Barbara Pym, a day of talks rather. Triona, probably you were there. And um, that was in 1993, I think. It had been very successful and it had been mentioned on Radio 4 I think on Woman's Hour, and at the end of the broadcast, uh, the announcer had said, if anyone's interested in forming a Barbara Pym Society, please contact Eileen Roberts at St Hilda's College. Now, Eileen Roberts was the development officer at St Hilda's at the time, and she had no idea that this announcement was going to be made. So suddenly she was flooded with applications to join the society that hadn't yet been formed. And it's to Eileen that we owe 
the society's existence, I think, because if she hadn't taken up the initiative, probably nothing much would have happened. Mm. Was it her personal kind of um, decision or was it the college that decided to honour Barberton? In a way, she was the, uh, being the development officer at the college, she had the full support of college Mm. or whatever she did. That was the point at which um, I read about this society at St. Hilda's and thought, hmm, I've read most of Barbara Pym's books. Maybe I should, um, maybe I should join this, which I did, mm. and went to the first proper meeting of the society, which was in 1995. And so, of course, we've celebrated our 25th anniversary already. Mm. Um, we then gradually expanded to the point where a North American chapter branch, if you like, was formed, which it amazed me to discover that there were all these Americans who loved Barbara Mm. Pym and knew all about her, many of them academics. Mm. And they were always around in the conferences, but then they started having their own conference in Boston, uh, a lady called Ellen Miller, who's sadly no longer with us, was the driving force behind that. And she had connections with um, Harvard Law School, where the uh, American North American chapter now hold their annual conference mm-hmm. So in Boston. So mm-hmm. that's um, quite an event, too. It's rather different. Their approach to PIM is rather different from ours, but it's... Um, it's very. It's an experience to go to the conference. <laughs> and um, and what's what's different about their approach to PIM? I think a lot of the American readers are academics, and right. they believe in studying PIM in considerable depth. Mm. Whereas a lot of our British contingent are more fans of her novels who aren't necessarily, don't necessarily have any academic background, mm. but just like to talk about her books yeah. and compare notes on which is their favourite and listen to um, the dramatised readings that we have at all our conferences. Yeah. Because uh, obviously she, well, I think most people would agree, she's much funnier when you read her out loud, the dialogue in her novels is um, incredible. And you can tell that these are conversations that she is, every, every, everything, pretty much everything in her books is observed from real life. Mm, yeah. So it has that authenticity about it. Whilst at the same time, she saw that comic side of life, of real life. There's some, um, I think when you read Barbara Pym, you do have to, you know, she's often compared to Jane Austen, but you do, I think you you do need to be looking for the humour and then it's there. Well, that's how I personally find it. If I approach it, when I think when I first read Barbara Pym, I didn't quite pick up on it. I wasn't quite attuned to it, but I think now I've read a few novels by her. I can, and, and the biographies, and I can under, I can see the humour in it, and like you say, the authenticity of it. 
the endless making cups of tea and the small world that in London, for example, where she lived in, you can't help but feel this is so sort of closely observed. Yes. Before my mother passed away, I used to read to her because she couldn't read herself. And um, I read a couple of Pym novels to her and we would both have fits of the giggles. Sometimes I would be laughing so much I couldn't actually read. (laughs) (laughs) And she hadn't really, she'd read a lot of Barbara Pym, but she hadn't really appreciated it, I think, Mm. until, until then. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I love the the first bit of Barbara Pin that made me laugh out loud was Faustina the cat having yes. a, a couple of cats, uh, and uh, Philip Larkin's comment that uh, he thought the unsuitable attachment was actually the attachment to the cat, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. I, I thought, yeah, I, I'm definitely in a couple of unsuitable attachments in my house. Um, I thought that was lovely. Um, Trona, do you want to introduce yourself as well, please? Yeah, I was very lucky in that I went to St Hilda's as an undergraduate, 93 to 96. So uh, 93 was the centenary year, and that's why there have been all these events, these alumni events, Mm. uh, one of which was St Hilda's crime fiction, which is still going, and one of which was Barbara Pym. So although, like Deb, I missed that initial meeting, um, I had read Pym in preparation for coming up because I'd looked up who were famous St Hilda's alumni. And... And I read her diaries a lot during my first year as a, like an accompaniment to, to St Hilda's life, which of mm. course was quite, quite different, not as different as it is now, because at that time it was still a single-sex college. Right, okay. So I was reading about her, um, I think her expostulating, oh, bloody Beowulf. That was great comfort <laughs> to me in the first, in the first, uh, first, uh, first term. And also, um, what was it, um, I weighed up the options of giving myself a facial or doing my Anglo-Saxon, and I did the former, and I think the results uh, proved that my choice was the best one. <laughs> and then, of course, going to the Bodleian, which is extremely romantic, but mm. even more romantic uh, if, if you're reading Pym Diaries, because she uses it as a stalking ground for gorgeous young men. Mm. So reading her uh, in the Bodleian, she used to go up and look up words that she didn't need to look up in a big, <laughs> in a big dictionary that was on a stand because it sort of had a, it had a window behind it that acted as a mirror. So she could look at, she could look up and look at, and look at the, so the funny. object of her affection. Is it, yeah. was it Henry, one of them, she went over and offered them a pencil just to, uh, just oh, to yeah. make a connection. I didn't really need it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she, she, yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was, Yes, she, she was. Well, what I began to think was I began to think as I was doing you know, two essays and one Anglo-Saxon translation a, a week, thinking how did she manage to get a first? Because I assume that everyone who was famous um, got a first. And of course she didn't. I can't yeah. remember if actually she got a 2-2, but she certainly mm. didn't get a first. Which she makes she was very busy doing like very busy. <laughs> I mean, it, like it all paid off in the end <laughs> for yeah. all the rich material yeah. at the time. So... Um, it's interesting you asked about college. Our then principal, Elizabeth Lorraine Smith, was in fact a Pym fan. Uh, whether she had been before she took the post or not, I don't know. But she's the kind of woman who would have seen it as her duty to read the books. Um, so she was very supportive of this alumni um, group, mm. which became the society. So I was lucky enough to be at the first meeting. And that was... Well, yeah, that was a story ever since, basically. Yeah, yeah. And did um, Barbara Pym herself keep in touch with St Hilda's? 
you know, she didn't a lot. She does write about going to a Gordy. Uh, and I think that's about it, Deb, isn't it? It was a bit disappointing. She one always wrote our, about it very fondly. Mm. One of our members, but, Alex Ward, had actually uh, met Barbara Pym and her sister at a Gordy without knowing who they were because it was still in that 70s period. Mm. And she remembered seeing them going into the library at St Hilda's and she thought that they were probably checking whether the library had any of Barbara Pym's <laughs> books. Yeah. Um, and what, what's a Gordy? The Gordy is the big reunion every year. Oh, right. So there would uh, have been all an opportunity. Do it differently, but this is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she definitely writes about that. And she's, she never wrote sort of um, disparagingly of St Hilda's. But I do wonder if it was partly because she assumed a different persona when she was at college. Mm. Mm. Barbara mm. and dressed very differently and did her room in a very, she sort of staged her room mm. for this new character. And then was sort of, I remember, was it mingled? excitement and despair when Henry first meets her and says, oh, yes, I've heard of Sandra. Sandra, sort of, that's it. That was a, Everybody's a, heard of Sandra. Sandra. Like, what have I done? <laughs> so maybe she left Sandra behind somewhat when she left Hilda's. Yeah, because she, um, she, she very um, sort of explicitly built this kind of alternative persona, didn't she, with her name yes. and everything. Remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Her, name, her, name, her name, Sandra on a cushion. And- yeah. He just addressed as Sandra, and Sandra was very glamorous. The glamorous, and, and, and then those skirts yeah. was quite outrageous. Yeah, mm. and her way. I mean, I think like Larkin um, coming into the world of Oxford was was quite intimidating because she had that kind of middle class background. She wasn't as rich as mm. some of the other people there, or as well connected. Just just like Larkin, really, and I think. Um, you know, it was her way of, I guess, it was of a way of integrating. Deb, would you say that that she wasn't because Hillary, Hillary? I think would it be right to say that Hillary, her sister, was really thought of as the more academic, and Hillary went to LMH. I think that's probably true, although I don't think it was. I mean, I think it would be a difference of degree, no, I, really. I don't think um, it was a problem, but the sense that so in the way that Hillary was sort of expected to go to Oxford and expected to be in that region. Okay. Yes. Perhaps Barbara wasn't quite so much. And then, yes, created this yes. this almost anti-Oxford persona of, mm. of Sandra, yeah. the anti-blue stocking. Yeah, because uh, Sandra would um, was seen as quite a, an exotic name then, like a, the, yes. a shortening of Cassandra or something like that. Yes. Uh, quite a sort of European kind of continental name. Um, so I don't think we have the, quite the same connotations with it now. Um, no. But she, she picked that name really carefully, it's didn't she? Mysterious and glamorous and sexy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, when because she was there the, the gener- before World War Two, and obviously Larkin was in Oxford during World War Two, and the experiences that they had were so different. Mm. Um, it's like they were in a different city, really. Mm. She writes about that. I mean, obviously, um, yeah, they write about everything, but she does talk about it in the, in the letters, and she calls it the meagre time when Larkin was there. Yeah. And saying how different it must have been. Yeah, very how, much. Yeah. How almost late... How almost it was still sort of 1920s in her Oxford, people wearing, um, people carrying about toy kangaroos and wearing silver lame shirts and coming into the George pub with a, with a lizard on their shoulder, you know, all quite bridesheady and remarkable. Yeah. Larkin, you know, it was one, one bottle of wine a term. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and um, but as Pim points out, there were still girls. So <laughs> the main action of Oxford was still happening. Yeah, because yeah. Crampton Hodnett, she wrote first, didn't she? She did. And, yeah, but it wasn't published until after she died. Is that That's right? Until right. late. Yeah. And I think Crampton Hodnett's a gateway drug, like excellent women. I mean, Crampton Hodnett is the laugh out loud on the bus. Yes, it is. Yeah. But unfortunately, I couldn't find my copy because I put all my copies all over the place. So <laughs> it's Crampton, Crampton Hodnett's fictional village. If you've got the, if you've got the proposal, I still that still makes me laugh out loud every time I read it. Oh yeah, I have. But I was what I was reading was I was looking at the bit at the beginning where they have um Miss Dolgett, who is this domineering rather wealthy woman living in North Oxford, uh, likes to have undergraduates around for a tea party in her house. She's her companion, Miss Morrow, is a is a more sympathetic character. Mm. But then I was looking at it and I was realizing why Barbara didn't think that it would ever be published because it was a bit of a a period piece. And um, she says to one of the young men, uh, Canon Oak wrote to me about you, she said ominously. Canon Oak, Mr. Cherry waited uncertainly. What was the vicar of his home parish likely to write about him, he wondered. He believed that it could hardly be anything to his discredit. Miss Doggett paused and said in an impressive tone, he told me you were a Bolshevik. <laughs> Mr. Cherry was as startled as the others at hearing this violent word, and he was as conscious of its incongruity as applied to himself as he imagined they were. I'm a socialist, he said shyly. I suppose he meant that. Socialist may have been the word he used, said Miss Doggett, but I really see no difference between the two. So Barbara Pym can't imagine people in the 1950s reading that and relating to it. Mm, mm. No, um, I, I really like that passage, and I, I like the um, the sort of political kind of side of Barbara Pym. Mm. It's really interesting. I mean, mm. uh, you know, the uh, the way she got drawn into Germany in the 1930s, like so many young people did, like Philip Larkin's father did, and and mm. for a long while, people genuinely believed that you know the the German government had found some sort of uh, you know way ahead to to you know make their their country prosperous and and all this and obviously underneath the surface these terrible th things were starting to unfold um that people like barbara out in germany in the 1930s having a lovely time meeting all these glamorous soldiers weren't aware of um and uh she wrote about uh, pre-war Germany in in her novels, didn't she? And eventually took all that took all yes. that out. She was, in fact, she when she wrote uh, some tame gazelle, and she was looking forward to the future. She intended to include mentions of the Nazis as mm. being um, people who were um, living in some had been exiled to some uh, distant country. And people felt sorry for them mm. because their time had come and gone. Mm. I mean, after the war, she couldn't really 
keep that kind of thing in uh, in in uh, by 1948, I think, sometime Gazelle was published, so she couldn't keep those things in a book no, in that no. period. But at the time she was writing it, she was quite really, she foresaw that the Nazis wouldn't, couldn't last. But yeah. She didn't recognise why. And in the passage I just read, um, she goes on from talking about the young man being a socialist to his thoughts about socialism, which show that she kind of understood where he was coming from, mm-hmm. even if she wasn't herself um, into that kind of politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was very sort of aware of what was going on in the wider stage and, and a great linguist, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she yeah, she, she was. She was talented. Yeah, she had a talent for languages, certainly. Um, and was able to travel, of course, in the war. Uh, in a way she mightn't have been able to, but she always travelled, but that was particularly exciting for her. Yeah, so she spent the time in um, Italy, mm-hmm. uh, which she writes about in, that's in ex- Excellent yeah. Women, is that the one uh, with Rocky? No, With Rocky, yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 which is it's so funny. Um, well, my bit, that, my bit is that, my bit is the opening of Excellent Women, because it concludes with one of my favourite quotes, which also is a literary awareness sort of thing, which is always good for an essay. <laughs> if, the, if the author ever talks about writing, always use that bit. Um, but I could, I could read that bit. I think excellent women is. I know you said Crumpton Hodner is the, is the gateway, but I do. For me, not being so familiar with Barbara Pym, when I reread it this year, it kind of felt to me really um, quintessential Barbara Pym, actually, mm. in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. It is when people talk about Pym, it's often. It's often excellent women that they're yeah. thinking of in a way. Yeah, it does come yeah. Right. And partly because of the first person narrator of Mildred. Yeah, um, because uh, Mildred is so associated. She's, she's, with she's so closely allied with him herself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're going to read the um, opening? I'll read the opening. That's brilliant. Are you ladies always on the spot when there's something happening? This voice belonged to Mr. Mallet, one of our church wardens, and its roguish tone made me start guiltily, almost as if I had no right to be discovered on my own front door. New people moving in? The presence of a furniture van would seem to suggest it, he went on pompously. I expect you know all about it. Well, yes, one usually does, I said, feeling rather annoyed at his presumption. It's rather difficult not to know such things. I suppose as an unmarried woman just over 30 who lives alone and has no apparent ties, one must expect to find oneself involved or interested in other people's business. And if she's also a clergyman's daughter, then one really might say there's no hope for her. Well, well, tempest fugit, as the poet says, called out Mr. Mallet as he hurried on. I had to agree that it did, but I dawdled long enough to see the furniture men set down a couple of chairs on the pavement And as I walked up the stairs to my flat, I heard the footsteps of a person in the empty room below me, pacing about on the bare boards, deciding where each piece should go. Mrs Napier, I thought, for I had noticed a letter addressed to somebody of that name, marked to await arrival. But now that she had materialised, I felt perversely that I did not want to see her, so I hurried into my own rooms and began tidying out the kitchen. I met her for the first time, by the dustbins later that afternoon. The dustbins were in the basement and everybody in the house shared them. There were offices on the ground floor and above them the two flats, not properly self-contained 
and without every convenience. I have to share a bathroom, I have so often murmured, almost with shame, as if I personally had been found unworthy of a bathroom of my own. I bent low over the bin and scrabbled a few tea leaves and potato peelings out of the bottom of my bucket. I was embarrassed that we should meet like this. I had meant to ask Mrs Napier for coffee one evening. It was to have been a gracious, civilised occasion with my best coffee cups and biscuits on little silver dishes. And now here I was standing awkwardly in my oldest clothes, carrying a bucket and a waste paper basket. <laughs> Mrs Napier spoke first. You must be Miss Lathbury, she said abruptly. I've seen your name on one of the doorbells. Yes, I live in the flat above yours. I do hope you're getting comfortably settled in. Moving is such a business, isn't it? It seems to take so long to get everything straight. Some essential like a teapot or a frying pan is always lost. Platitudes flowed easily from me, perhaps because with my parochial experience, I know myself to be capable of dealing with most of the stock situations or even the great moments of life. Birth, marriage, death, the successful jumble saying, <laughs> the garden fate spoiled by bad weather. Mildred is such a help to her father, people used to say after my mother died. It would be nice to have someone else in the house, I ventured, for during the last year of the war, my friend Dora Caldicott and I had been the only occupants, and I had been quite alone for the past month since Dora left to take up a teaching post in the country. Oh, well, I don't suppose I shall be in very much, said Mrs Napier quickly. Oh, no, I said, drawing back, neither shall I. In fact, I was very often in, but understood her reluctance to pledge herself to anything that might become a nuisance or a tie. We were, superficially at any rate, a very unlikely pair to become friendly. She was fair-haired and pretty, gaily dressed in corduroy trousers and a bright jersey, while I, mousy and rather plain anyway, drew attention to these qualities with my shapeless overall and old form skirt. Let me hasten to add that I am not at all like Jane Eyre, who must have given hope to so many plain women who tell their stories in the first person, nor have I ever thought to myself as being like her. <laughs> I love the Jane Eyre. It's yeah. just... Just when you think you might have a handle on the kind of person this is and the kind of way it's going, she calls you out on it. No, 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 no. Just you wait and yes. see. I'm not Jane Eyre. It reminds me of the opening of Catcher in the Rye where he says, I'm not David Copperfield. I'm not going to write all that rubbish. Yeah, this is what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do something different. And uh, I I do, what, what always strikes me about Barbara Pym and, and also reading Larkin as well is, you know, I was born in 1970 and so I didn't grow up in that generation where the level of formality was so high in the way that people addressed each other in in their society, you know, I mean, obviously not everybody in the UK, but, you know, there was this real level of formality and still calling people Mr. and Mrs., you know, and, and you'd call your husband Mr. So-and-so in company. And um, there were very complex kind of rules about how you behaved. I mean, a lot of this story is is about who's getting married to who, isn't it? And, mm. and you know, the, the problem of Mil Mildred not being married um, mm. and how they might solve that problem, not not that she wants to particularly, but it seems like there's can, pressure. Or how other people can, can usefully employ her. Yeah, what can she do as an unmarried? Yeah. She makes tea, she arranges for furniture removals. Oh, they um, put so much on her, don't they? they? They expect so much of her. And then nasty old Allegra Gray uh, 
you know, angles for the vicar and then suggests very strongly that the vicar's sister moves out to the vicarage with Mildred so they can be, you know, two lonely old women together. Yeah. And they, they make um, this assumption that she wanted to she marry was, the vicar and, vicar, and yeah. she's constantly saying, I, I never I wanted. <laughs> I've never had any aspirations to the vicar. Um, <laughs> but was it Larkin says that in it, because I think it's a very painful novel. It's a very painful novel. Well, it's a very funny novel. And Larkin says, uh, Mildred's like an old Victorian cab horse. Everyone mm. sees that she's suffering. It's a very obvious thing. But no one questions why or whether they should do something about it. Mm. It's almost like a condition of life. You know? Yeah. She's, yeah. A, she's a spinster, therefore she will suffer. Yeah, it is. It is. When you think when she, she had so much freedom as a young woman at Oxford and... Mm. It was very hard in society for women to just live a kind of free life and make their own choices. Also, the um, the, the influence of the church in her books, they're, they're full of church life, aren't they? Mm. That reminded me, I was reading, because it's an obvious, <clears throat> an obvious one to try and make a link, um, church going yesterday. Yeah. And uh, thinking, you know, the atheist and the, and the Anglican. Um, but it, the very, very pim moment. I mean, it's all quite pim in the sense of it is, it builds the picture of the yeah. church uh, initially. But the very pim bit, which is um, up at the holy end, the small, neat, neat organ and the tense, musty, unignorable silence, brood God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's immensely pim. Yeah. And then the next bit, yeah. Uh, again, very pim. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large scale verses and pronounce, here endeth much more loudly than I'd meant. <laughs> the echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Um, I think there's a, you know, the, the Venn diagram of, of, of Pim and Larkin, really, that's, there's a big overlap there. Yeah. That, that undercutting. That undercutting. Yeah of the solemnity of the place. And seeing and seeing the kind of the sort of absurdity sometimes of church yes, life the, and absurdities and, of church life or yeah. reverence. What's he doing? Yeah. What does it yeah. mean to take off your cyclops? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing about Sorry, reverence but, uh, is really about religion, is it? It's it's you know the, the church is a, is essentially a social structure yeah. that mm. um, enables things to continue to carry on it's it's a community um mm. and that's where its use is in her novels and she certainly in her life it was um a a an important nucleus for her social life and when she retired from working in london where she'd always gone to church um then she moved to the verge of finstock in oxfordshire mm. and um and there she and her sister, again, became quite important to the uh, continuation of, of parish work in, in Finstock, mm. where they're both buried in the, in the churchyard there, side by side. The relationship between um, Larkin and, and Pym is is really quite fascinating. I was just having a look at um, Andrew Motion's biography today, uh, 
the section where they meet um, at the hotel for the first time. Mm. After 14 14 years? Yeah, yeah. And this idea that motion suggests that um, Larkin was feeling a little bit kind of, um, I don't know, a bit kind of things were difficult for him at this time. Things are always complicated with Monica. Um, And... uh, Motion suggests that Larkin was feeling a little bit isolated, a little bit sort of socially isolated. And maybe this was why it was a good time that he wanted to actually meet Barbara kind of face to face after so many years of just corresponding. And I I really liked uh, the comment here where she said, Pim would work out who Larkin was by progressive elimination, i.e. eliminating all the progressives. <laughs> and Larkin would recognise Pim because she'd probably be wearing a beige tweed suit or a Welsh tweed cape if colder. Um, and they'd kind of recognise each other. I mean, they must have both been, they were incredibly um, distinctive in how they looked, but I just really liked yes, the, the humour in how they kind of mm. pretend to struggle to recognise each other. <laughs> um, In Oxford, they wouldn't have stood out as much as perhaps as they no, were. No, honestly. No. The more yeah. I work in Oxford, the more I think that would be true. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting. I, d- I'm, I don't think he was lining Barbara up as a next um, conquest, but no. it is really interesting that the, the letters are very fond and very intimate and very, very supportive. And they talk about life and they talk about death mm. and they talk about depression and grief and illness they never ever talk about love Mm, that's interesting larkin never mentions his affairs and pym never mentions hers and uh you know however many years ago it was years and years ago the thwaites had done a version of the letters and they were typewritten so in order to start working on it i lazily got a friend of mine to type them up into a digital document and she'd never heard of pym or larkin at all. And she said, it's so sad because they're both, you know, they're both so lonely. You know, this solitary bachelor and this solitary spinster and they don't get together. <laughs> and I just sort of sat back and laughed, laughed, laughed. Uh, I said, well, Larkin very famously was not a lonely bachelor. It's so funny, he often talks about waking up at night and feeling upset and things. He never says, and I turn to the person next to me. No. Uh, and similarly, Barbara, of course, there's a very misleading idea of her as a lonely spinster, where oh. she had a very active you might call it unsuccessful or you might call it unhealthy. You might call it just um, how not wanting to be pinned down into a marriage. Yeah, yeah. Definitely unconventional love life, but they both have one. And it's interesting that they do not bring it up into these letters. They exist mm. in this little relationship between them. I know he talks about her to Monica. There's one bit where he says... Um, she mentioned something about, about Italy and her experiences uh, over there. And he says, I knew there was something. I knew there was always something plangent about that Rocky Napier stuff. Mm. There's more mm. going on. But he never asked Pim about it. No. No, they, they did have that. It's that commitment to their art, I think, with Larkin and Pim as well, that they couldn't quite commit to anything else in the same way in that they committed to their writing. No, James J- James Booth, who was saying, you know, was explaining um, how very different they are and what an apparently unlikely friendship it is. Mm. Um, it, it sees, sees that as one of the big um, congruences of them. Mm. That they they seem to fear that that love or a, you know, a, a regular intimate relationship would somehow would somehow make their art suffer. Yeah, yeah. 
but they never wrote about that explicitly. Not to each other, no. Yeah. They clearly had a very strong connection, didn't they? Like uh, Larkin's letters often start with, oh, I'm so sorry, I've not written sooner. And and he feels, you know, that he wants to be a good correspondent. And a, it's funny, know. yes. Um, I've used, I call it, I used to, it used to be called Dear Miss Larkin, Dear Mr. Pym. And I call it We Used to Correspond because that's a quote actually from his letter to Anthony Thwaite about the funeral. And he doesn't say, she was my great friend or she was the love of my life or mm. anything extravagant. He says very wistfully, we used to correspond. Mm. Mm. And of course, the word, to, um, to use the lovely word, plangent again, such a Larkin word, mm. is because it's not just about the exchange of letters. It's about a connection, a corresponding, a simpatico, mm. yes, a connection, um, a oneness, a togetherness that they had. That was very beautiful and very funny. And they humour each other a lot and they look after each other a lot. Yeah. You know, when Larkin is feeling unhappy about his motor car, Barbara doesn't point out that she's very ill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then when she, he does find out she's very ill, he is you know, wonderful about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, the, but the connection is always really him supporting her as a writer when most people have forgotten that she was one. And she continues writing just... Like a void, like a little voice into the void. Mm. No one's going to read it, perhaps, but she continues doing it. Mm. And he's there all the time, encouraging her to get on. And she was writing up. right up to her death, wasn't she? She was planning oh, a novel. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we haven't really um, spoken up yet about the big career. Yeah. The, the 15 years when she wasn't published and and Philip Larkin was there throughout that period yeah. because he began his correspondence with her in 1961 when she had just had No Fond Return of Love published and then uh, he wrote to her to ask what she was doing next and it was her next book that was rejected by the publisher mm. And he tried very hard to help her to get published again, yeah. sent her manuscripts to his own publisher. He spoke to other publishers on her behalf. And he was unsuccessful, but really, of course, it was to him largely that she owed her research mm. in 1977 when he uh, wrote that article or he contributed to that article in the Times Literary Supplement. And fortunately, yeah, had an ally in Lord David Cecil, which was yeah. how it came about that Barbara Pym was the only um, one of the authors mentioned in that article that had that was recommended by two different people as most um, underrated writer. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, of course, the following year when um, Quartet in Autumn came up for the Booker Prize, Philip Larkin was the chair of the, of the churches. Um, she didn't win, of course, but um, you wonder how much of a role he had in, in getting her book onto the list. Yeah. He, d he does say, at least I can, d I can definitely get you read by the panel. Yeah. yeah. He says that right away, actually. Yeah. I mean, it was devastating for her, wasn't it, when she was turned down and, and it was very, um, when her, the, the book was turned down for publishing and very sort of cruelly done, it seems to me. Mm. Um, sort of external readers decided they didn't like it. it. It was very sort of blunt 
And yes, I think but it, she very much wasn't taken out for a lovely lunch and had a chat about it. She, she wasn't barely, encouraged. Just or, barely got a note, almost like yeah. a new author. No, not for yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, really, really cruel. Um, it wasn't really even suggested that it might be suitable if she could improve it. No. And no. I, I think that um, that's very much to do with uh, it being the early 1960s and her writing this book, which was really out of its time, about mm. a woman who wants to marry a man that her family considers unsuitable because a woman with a career, um, independent woman, you know, in her early 30s, uh, in the early 60s, you would have expected her to just do whatever she liked. Mm. And so although she wasn't, uh, um, the character isn't untypical of the period because uh, I'm sure there were plenty of women then who did what their family wanted instead mm. of what mm. they um, would have liked to do. Well, economically, it was still hard, wasn't it, for women to be independent in the yeah, early yes. 60s? Nevertheless, it was going against the, it, it was the wrong message, shall we mm. say, mm -hmm. for the people. Yeah, it might have been the reality of a lot of people's lives, so it wasn't particularly what was, yes. what was the narrative that people wanted to be reading. Mm. Yeah. I, um, they have a lot of fun uh, suggesting, you know, titles and uh, other books and um, South African uh, South African homosexual football players and all sorts of things <laughs> that you, you should be writing about and they yeah. definitely get published. Yeah. 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 But she's, you know, she stayed, she didn't try and, and update what she was writing about to be, to do that. She didn't go away and try and write something trendy. She stayed with what she was able to do and what she wrote, wanted to write about and what was true to her. Yeah. Um, I, um, Quartet in Autumn, I feel is, um, such a I found it quite shocking when I first read it and mm. um it goes to a lot of very dark places mm. some of which obviously based on her own life her her breast cancer and the mastectomy for example I can't think of another novel that I've read that go, that talks about a character that experiences that certainly not for the 1970s anyway um and it seemed like a very brave novel for for her to write mm. um and it's 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 easy to see it um, in the context of what we were just saying, it's easy to see it as, as being very different from Pym, as from the earlier work, as though she made a leap. But of course she didn't, because she was still writing during all those wilderness uh -huh. years. Yeah. So yeah. I think yeah. it's very much a natural progression. And Larkin sees that as well, but he says, um, it would be wrong to say I enjoyed it in the simple sense of the word, because I found it strongly depressing. But I seem to recall that some Greek explained how we can enjoy things that make us miserable. And this is a bit interesting. It's so strange to find the level, good-humoured, tender irony of your style unchanged, but dealing with the awful end of life. Mm. I admire you enormously for tackling it and for bringing it off so well. That book brings out more clearly the courage that all your characters can call on and have to call on at some point or other in their stories. So he, I think it's interesting that, that Pim, uh, Larkin sees it very much as a very Pym novel. He doesn't see mm. it as a departure, but as a natural progression of all her themes and her writing. Well, when you get to the age that um, that I am now, which is not far off the age Barbara Pym was when she died, um, you start to realise that there's a lot about old age that's funny. <laughs> mm. And so an older person can perhaps read this book 
and found it. Less, it is very funny. funny. Mm. Oh yeah, um, it's still it's still very funny. But um, I think you're right, Lynn, that it's shocking. Mm. Yes, it yeah. seems it is very funny, but it is shocking. Yes. Really it is funny. shocking. Um, it's the sort of I think the prosaic way in which she treats deals with Marcy's little um, habits. You know, and and well, Marcy's whole character. Really, yeah. you know that this woman's got this at least the start of dementia. Yeah, mm. so this and, is Master Ivory, who's the, yes. one of the four main characters, because the quartet is the four people, isn't it, that tell tell the story? But Marcia is not well, uh, as you say, the onset of dementia or some kind of sort of mental illness uh, she's hoarding and not eating and she collects milk bottles it's, it's a very um yeah some of the scenes with marcia are really difficult to read i, I have to say that the milk bottles is really sad mm. and shocking mm. but at the mm. same time uh, <laughs> we have a pim tombola at most of our, our summer events uh, and um, the, the uh, conferences tend to be around either a book or a theme alternating i can't remember if it, if it was Quartet, or was it just one of the things? But one of the items in, in the tombola was a vintage milk bottle. Yes. <laughs> so we, we tend to see both sides of everything in the Pin Society. Yeah, yeah. No, I love, I love that. I've, what I wanted to do is just read the little bit from um, Quartet in Autumn that has a direct link to Philip Larkin, mm-hmm. um, which is where she uses the line from ambulances, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, this is towards the end of the novel where Marcia is on, on a real decline in terms of her kind of physical health and her mental health as well. And, and her friends are quite concerned, but they also don't feel very brave enough to go around and actually do anything um, mm. until things get quite serious and uh, an ambulance is called. Marcia had always appreciated the drama of an ambulance and even wanted to ride in one. But when the time came, she was hardly in a position to realise that she was at last achieving this unusual ambition. Unreachable inside a room, she may have been, yet there was no sense of that little room becoming an everywhere in the fantasy of an earlier poet. No fragment of poetry from long ago lingered in Marcia's mind as she lay under a red blanket. She had been aware of people coming into the house as she sat at the kitchen table, thinking she heard Edwin's voice and imagining herself back in the office. But where was Norman? She was also half-conscious of Janice Brabner fussing around her, seeming to panic a bit. Marcia tried to tell her that she had half a dozen new nighties never worn, tucked away in a drawer upstairs, and also to explain about the card on the mantelpiece, giving her next appointment to outpatients. But she found herself unable to speak. She tried, but no words came. Then she heard Janice going on in her silly way about the 90s, all brand new and never worn. And that was when she smiled. Of course they were new, specially chosen for this occasion. Already she had moved away from Janice and soon she would be out of the reach of all social workers trying to make her do things she didn't want to do, like going down to the centre, buying fresh vegetables and taking a holiday. I just think this funny and poignant all at the same time. Mm. And the, and the lovely reference to to ambulances, you know, the poet from an earlier earlier time. When they meet, uh, she writes in her diary, when they meet at the Randolph, she said, we sat at the Randolph uh, at the front, watching the ambulances go down Beaumont Street. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost a little, even this is joyous occasion, a little hint of melancholy. 
Yeah, yeah. In relation to his work. Because the the theme, the sort of story of ambulances is about that the the, the observers, isn't it, and that mm. kind of separation between the observers and the person in the ambulance, and that kind mm. of secrecy, clothes like confessionals, you know, like a religious image there, yeah. and and the secret uh, events that unfold inside the ambulance, and the the ambulances when Philip Larkin was writing were much more discreet anyway than they are today. You know, the sort of pale grey and didn't have the kind of mm. sort of to now, I think ambulances are very functional. I think we all know what goes on inside an ambulance, but um, mm. in Larkin's day, they were they were more secretive, and, and mm. um, you just Discreet. got put on a stretcher and carried away. Really, they didn't do a lot of medical treatment, did they? I think no, was, they didn't have paramedics in the same way. No, did they? If, someone, if someone was in an ambulance, not a lot was going on. No, it no. wasn't good to. I, I mean, um, she continued with this thing of uh, having romances with the most unsuitable men until she was uh, around about, well, I suppose she was in her 50s when she met Skipper. Do you know, am I right there? Mm, yeah. And he was an um, uh, antique dealer called, called Richard Roberts, who died quite recently, just a few months mm. ago. Mm. And um, he was very handsome. And he, of course, he was much, much younger than her. Uh, and apart from that, he was gay. And um, yet she nurtured this idea of a relationship with him. She knew really that it was never going to come to anything. Mm. But at the same time, she, I suppose, hoped against hope. I don't know if she ever really thought that anything could come of it, but she liked to think that he did feel something for her. And that was the germ of the idea uh, the sweet, of The Sweet Dove Died, which was her last completed novel, her last properly completed novel, the last one to be published during her lifetime, mm. which many consider to be her finest work, which is about a romance between an older woman and uh, a younger gay man. Mm. Mm. I mean, gay, gay men feature a lot. In, uh, in the novel. Even in a very early work. Which, mm. I don't know, maybe that is that to be expected of an Anglican, a high Anglican novelist? <laughs> <laughs> she was, and, she was and, very and sort of open-minded, of wasn't she? And, and oh, she very was. accepting of people. Mm. So again, not, not quite the cosy spinster that some people... No, not at all. That they know. Mm. There, 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 there are a lot of young men in very tight jeans hanging around. And she liked, I mean, he <laughs> was very... Antiques. Yeah, he is very handsome, um, Skipper, yeah, and uh, mm. Henry was very handsome as well. She she was certainly uh, had a particular sort of taste in quite kind of chiselled featured yeah. young men. Um, I know uh, James Booth um, says that he he was very he's quite interested in the way that she presents gay relationships, and and would have liked her to have actually been more kind of just explored that more maybe you know mm. that she, she brought that aspect into her books and clearly had a very sort of liberated kind of op open acceptance of that um so i think sometimes i think maybe james felt it could have been further developed but i don't know whether that was because she did as much as she could in the in the I, times I that she was like, writing in i quite like the extent this is Paradoxical. I quite like the extent to which she doesn't explore, mm. um, because partly that would be slightly beyond her ken, but also because she, mm. 
it's because you just it's just part of the landscape and I quite mm. like that almost casual inclusion mm. of of gay people it's mm. not it's not a major focus it's not something remarkable or extraordinary so no and in fact they're, just, they're some of their characters yeah and that's probably which, more again, sort of revolutionary yeah. yeah 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 I, I, I like that idea it's great So I don't know if you want to, I know you've talked a bit about the play trainer and how you got started on it. Um, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about how it's developed and, and how you and Ben have been rehearsing, uh, yeah, for, for the end of the month. How's yeah, it going? It's, it's evolved a little bit. I'm trying to remember some of the, the dates. So the Anthwaite was, in fact, a St Hilda's woman. Mm. So I knew Anthwaite as an alumna uh, and... She and Anthony, Anthony curated this collection of the letters between them in, Deb, was it 2005? Yes, that, well, that. that was when it was said, read, read at St. That's Hilda. when we did it. Yes, yeah, so that, there was a Larkin Society meeting at the same time. And it concentrated very much, I would say, on the publishing aspect. And all, if, if you wanted an insight into... The, the who's and why's and wherefores and some of the gossip into the major London publishing houses at, okay. at that time. Yeah. Fascinating. And of course, this is something Anthony knew very much yeah. uh, at, at first hand because the, the manuscripts were going, you know, were going to various people and coming back and Larkin was trying to broker deals and then the Booker Prize and Will David Cecil. It was very much um, a portrait of the publishing, the hub of publishing at that time. Mm. Um, but when I was asked to do it, at the Oxford Literary Festival, um, which was some years later. That was, yes, that was 2013. The Thwaites were going to do it and they were unable to make that date. And I was sent their manuscript and I wanted to tell, it is telling the story of Pym. It's not, it, it is slightly angled in that way, but yeah. you can't, otherwise you'd have to do the whole of Larkin and yeah. the whole of Pym, uh, because it has a very strong narrative of, they meet, albeit on the page, right at this big turning point in her life. And to extent in his, I mean, High Windows is about to come out just when she suddenly finds herself in the wilderness mm. and then the turnaround. Um, and be because of that, and because in a way it's Pym's story, I began to put in mo uh, passages from her diaries as well as just the letters as yeah. sort of an aside, because I feel in a way she gives away less of herself to Larkin than Larkin does to her in a way, because um, she's very supportive. So the first time we did it was at the Oxford Literary Festival with Oliver Ford Davis. If you don't know his name, you definitely know his face. He's a wonderful actor who played Larkin in, was it Ben Bolt's? Was it Ben Bolt? There was a stage play about Larkin's women at Chichester, I think, and mm. Oliver had played him. So he was already a Larkin fan. I think by that point, Oliver was already older than Larkin had ever been. And at least almost twice my age. <laughs> but it worked very, very well. Mm -hmm. Subsequently done it in America with a lovely actor called Jack Gilpin. I've done it over here with Oliver again. Mm -hmm. But when we talked about doing it this time, I was really conscious of the fact that I'd say to people, who would who, make a good Larkin? Who would make a good Larkin? And the names that were coming up were people in their 60s and 70s and even like all of their 80s. Yeah. And it struck me that we think of them both as being 
elderly. Yeah, yeah. And they both died in their 60s. In their 60s, Barbara yeah. at 66 and Philip at 63. Yeah. And when they're writing to each other, they're in their, I think it's like in his late 30s. Certainly they're in their 40s, 40s and 50s when they're mm. writing to each other. So as part of a move to reclaim them, um, I was looking for somebody else, and I knew that Ben, who's a friend, had been reading some of his poetry and has always been a bit of a fan of Largan poetry. So I approached Ben if he, he would do it. And um, he immediately began reading Quartet in Autumn. And I immediately said, please read Excellent Women straight away afterwards, otherwise you'll get quite a, <laughs> you'll get quite a specific view of Yeah, them. yeah. But the letters are, yeah, they're fascinating. They are very warm and very funny. And we talked about the conventions and they begin as, you know, dear Miss Pym and dear Mr. Larkin, and they ask each other's permission to use mm. their first names. Mm. But it, they're very conversational. And I'd say in Pym particularly, a lot's going on underneath the surface. Mm. And it's a very beautiful story of two rather extraordinary people who, as I say, correspond in a way that's... It's unlike any of their other letters to anybody else. It's it's they, they exist as Pim and Larkin on these pages in a way that yeah. they don't anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. That and uh, Larkin had a, a quite a chameleon like uh, set of relationships in yes. his letters with different yes. people. And the letters, I think we all do, but, but yeah. this one yeah. is particularly extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The letters he writes to Barbara Pym really show that his. Very warm, compassionate, supportive side, you know, and, and they're lovely. To, they're really lovely to read. So I'm really looking did, forward to seeing them performed. I did show it to somebody who said, oh, he's so nice. <laughs> and I said, well, A, a lot of people who knew him actually say that. But yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and it's great that uh, Ben's doing it because obviously we're familiar with him um, taking on lots of historical roles. Yes. Um, yes and exactly. inhabiting, my children are very excited about it. Yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it's sad, sad that, it. wasn't, that there wasn't a Barbara Pimpin' Larkin version of Horrible Histories, but he's done just about, just about everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it would have been would have been interesting, a Horrible Histories, Philip Larkin, Barbara Pym episode. Um, yeah, so that, that would be lovely, um, a really lovely way of bringing two writers together um, mm. that, that cross over so much. Um, so, Deb, so in terms of the um, Barbara Pym Society then, um, what are your kind of aims and, and what are the things that you've got coming up um, in the well, next year every, or two? Every year we hold a conference at St. Hilda's College on the uh, first weekend in September. Yeah. Uh, this year we'll be focusing on um, A Few Green Leaves, which was the last book that Barbara Pym worked on before she died, but she didn't, I, I mean, I think we could say she probably didn't finish it to her satisfaction, mm, but it mm. was published. Um, we alternate between uh, looking at a specific book of hers one year and then following year we have a theme. Mm -hmm. um, for example, last year's theme was um, <clears throat> around the world and because of the COVID problem, although we were able to have the conference in person at mm. St. Hilda's, mm. um, most of our overseas members couldn't make it. Mm. Although Paula Byrne managed to make it from Arizona. Fantastic. A very um, grand entrance. Mm -hmm. 
just the right moment. <laughs> and um, uh, we also um, actually beamed in a speaker from Europe, Europe uh, and uh, it was a really very much what uh, they call a hybrid conference. Yeah, yeah. We, I can't see us doing that again because it's very complex and it does cost money to do it, but... Mm. If we if we were in this that situation again, at least we know what to do now. Yeah, the, the Larkin Society will have experienced the same. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have an AGM last year. Um, we didn't do anything in person last year. So uh, our we're hosting the Alliance of Literary Societies AGM uh, in May really? in Hull. That. Yeah, that's going to be excellent, and that will be our first in person event in. Two and a half years. Yeah, the Alliance of Literary Societies are, um, you know, they've done an, such a lot of good work. Uh, we had the, the the Penn Society hosted them in uh, in our centenary year, twenty thirteen, mm-hmm. and um, it's great to meet people from other literary societies and compare notes on what's going down at the moment. Yeah, definitely. They are doing a brilliant job, I think. And especially for me in the last couple of years, having been more involved with them because of helping to organise this year's AGM, um, I've learned a lot more about them and the the brilliant work that they do, really, because for literary societies, it's quite a tough world out there. Um, We're competing for people's time with lots of other things that people could be doing. Uh, And so, yeah, I agree. It's really nice to be able to to talk to each other and support each other and, uh, you know, consider joining each other's societies and things like that. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, they're great. I'm really looking forward to meeting them in person. So normally every year, as well as our conference and the North American conference, which takes place in March normally, Mm Uh, we hold a spring meeting in London Mm. and um, this year's programme is the programme, it's a special, it's really a special event because it's it's not at our usual venue, but it's at a very prestigious venue, which Triona will just tell you about. Oh, yes, we're going to the University Women's Club, uh, which is in Mayfair, and it always feels a bit of a home from home. Because, because all the women's colleges in Oxford and Cambridge tend to be Victorian, uh, it does feel a bit like coming into bits mm. of St Hilda's. And there are photographs of all our um, old principals and alumni mm. um, around about. So mm. it's a very pim place in that, in that mm. sense. It's got a very strong um, Hilda's connection. And it's a lovely venue. So we're going to have the readings in the library, which is a beautiful space. And once you've been there, once you've been in it, you'll notice when you start watching documentaries that so many people in telly are being interviewed in that library. You start oh. recognising the pillars. <laughs> uh, they were having our flu tea in the very elegant drawing room next door. Yeah. So I hope that we'll meet lots of Larkin people. And because Ben Wilbond is doing it, lots of people who haven't considered Pym or Larkin before. Mm. Yeah. It'll be quite quite a coming together. Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be really good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, my, and it will be my first in-person event, you know, literary event for a while. Um, so uh, I'm very excited to be coming down to London from, for that. It would be excellent. It's three o'clock on uh, Saturday the 30th of April. And um, if you are, if anyone listening to this is interested in 
uh, in booking, then the uh, place to go is to our website, which will give you the uh, the email address to send your inquiries. Yeah, I'll put all the details in the uh, podcast information. And there's also the details on the Philip Larkin Society website as well. And I know the, the Philip Larkin members have been invited. We've sent the invite out to them. So, Deb, you um, spoke to Yvonne Cockin, who was a colleague of Barbara Pym. She's a member of your society. She's our archivist. Yeah. um, She's a, um, what's the word I want? A mainstay of the Barbara Pym Society. Uh, She's 92 years old now, which is why she wanted to um, record that piece rather than do a live interview. Yeah. So having said that, she says, uh, as, as bright and chirpy as any 92-year-old. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she, she did know Barbara not well, but she knew um, Hazel Holt very well. Hazel right. Holt was Barbara's literary executor, and they, worked, they all worked together at the African Institute. Yeah. In 1960, I returned to England after 10 years in northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, where for some of that time I had been in charge of the record library of the Central African Broadcasting Station in Lusaka. No doubt this looked good on my CV when I applied for an assistant librarian's job at the International African Institute in London, which I was offered. As I recall, the staff at that time consisted of the professor, two senior administration staff, ladies, and Barbara and her assistant Hazel on the upper floor, and on the lower, the librarian and three staff, and a bookkeeper. I was introduced to all the staff, including Barbara Pym, the assistant editor of the journal Africa, who, other colleagues told me, had had six novels published, but whose type of book was now out of favour. I started reading the novels, but I'm afraid, like so many young people in the 1960s, I didn't find them very exciting. The officers were in St Dunstan's Chambers, Fetter Lane, off Fleet Street. Chief claim of this undistinguished building seemed to be that Dryden had once lived here, and as Barbara noted in her diary, she and Hazel Holt liked to think that Absalom and Akitavel might have been written there. I did not see Barbara very often as our areas of work did not overlap much, and when they did, Hazel was the usual intermediary. However, I do have a clear mental picture of Barbara sitting in her office upstairs, one arm draped over the back of another chair, with a cigarette in hand, on her lips the warm, crooked smile that Nancy Ellen Talbot noted. She seemed to me always to have an air of calm confidence about her, despite the chaotic appearance of her desk, strewn with manuscripts and proofs. She spoke in measured tones, enunciating very clearly, never rushing her words or raising her voice suddenly. To me, she was an authoritative, slightly awe-inspiring figure, partly because she was my senior in status as well as age, but also because she was a novelist, the first I had met. She was, however, very kind and non-condescending to junior staff and received a deal of respect in return. Thank you.
people always talk about Yvonne as um, I mention an event and they say, will Yvonne be there? Will I see mm-hmm. Yvonne? Will I get the chance to talk to Yvonne? So, yes, she uh, she's a very important part of our society. Yeah, lovely to hear a voice. Is she the only person now that, that was uh, an associate, a friend of um, Barbara Pym that you have in the society? She's not the only person who knew Barbara Pym. We're always coming up with people who, unexpected people who, I mean, I, I was at a, a meeting of another society and I happened to mention the fact that I was in the Barbara Pym Society and someone in the audience told me that he used to live in Finstock and that uh, at his son's christening, Barbara Pym had patted the baby on the head. Oh. <laughs> but uh, obviously he didn't really know her. But yes, there are a number of people who knew her during her retirement at Finstock. Yeah. yeah. And also, of course, um, the actor Julian Glover and his sister. Yeah. Drew, yeah. Uh, they knew her very well because her mo- their mother was uh, a very close friend of, of Barbara's. Yeah. It's really nice when you, you meet people who, you know, know your literary heroes and knew them and have met them. Um, we often get approached and, and contacted by people that, I don't know, stood next to Philip Larkin in the library or, you know, returned a book late or something like that and just a, a, a just a, a, a passing meeting with him, and it's often really fascinating to get those. One, little... one of our members um, is Phil Bacon, who you may know. He's a long-standing member of the Larkin Society, and he worked with Philip Larkin in in Hull. Yeah, and um, someone asked him for a, a reminiscence, and he didn't. He didn't really seem to have very very much to say about Larkin, but he. He, he said that uh, he liked, Philip Larkin liked to shock people. And one day he was wearing a, a tie with the emblem of the National Trust. And uh, someone asked him what, what, what it signified. And he said, it's the National Front. <laughs> Knowing full well that it was wrong. But, uh, <laughs> That's a very, very dark want- joke. <laughs> You probably don't want to put this in the in the in the podcast. I don't know, but um, what was Julian Glover's sister? Prue. 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 Um, I think when was it when she first came to speak to us, or was it somebody else? Because it always happened more than once. We we're all a bit trepidatious, thinking Pim has an affair with her father. Mm. Is she going to? Be, how is that going to work out? Mm. Is she going to be very anti-Pim? And, and she basically began going, "My father was a dreadful <laughs> man. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry that it happened." It um, was. Uh, my yeah, mother was, was wonderful. Pim was wonderful. That was Francis Kendrick. Who there was, you go. I knew it was somebody. Else. Barbara's friend in the <laughs> Wrens. happened more than once. Barbara's friend in the Wrens, her father was the director of the British Museum. That was, yes. <sighs> and it only became known a few years ago that Barbara had, had this relationship with Thomas oh, Kendrick. And nobody's really sure. Nobody's really sure exactly what went on, except mm. they were meeting regularly. Mm. Lunch and yes, Francis Kendrick, who at the time was about 95 or something, said um, that she hadn't known anything about it, but it didn't surprise her a bit because her father was an absolute bastard. Because, mm. <laughs> uh, again, that's not what people outside of him would expect, expect to be happening at the Pimps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you so much to my guests, Deb and Triona. And thank you to Yvonne Cockin. I've really enjoyed learning more about Barbara Pym, and I'm proud to say I'm now a member of the Barbara Pym Society. Please have a look at the Philip Larkin Society website for the details about the event in London on the 30th of April, and why not come along and say hello? So we're also now selling tickets for the joint event in Hull on the 20th to the 22nd of May, which has been run in conjunction with the Alliance of Literary Societies. It is going to be a complete Larkin Fest. There's going to be a day at the Hull History Centre, Saturday night at the Minerva Pub, and Sunday, a walk around Pearson Park and a visit to the Brimwell Jones Library. And you can come to all of the event uh, or just part of it. So if you're interested and you'd like to come along, the details are on our website. So really, the centenary year is just getting underway. And there's some more exciting news. I've entered Tiny In All That Air into the British Podcast Awards and to the Arts and Culture category. The winner will be announced on the 23rd of July. We'll keep you posted. This podcast was produced by Simon Galloway and the opening music is The Horns of the Morning by The Mechanicals Band. And as ever, if you have any comments or any suggestions, I love hearing from you, so please get in touch. The horns of the morning Are blowing, are shining The meadow is wet with the coldest of June.